Welcome to episode five of Sidewalk Skyline. My name's Kevin Rogers, and I think Canadian stories are worth repeating. After we released our last episode with Bob Gal, we rose to 645 subscribers. We're attracting new listeners every day. And, and you can help us actually by uh, promoting our podcast uh, through your social feeds. Uh, you can go to your podcast provider, leave us a review or a thumbs up, and uh, let's let the world know about Faith at Work in Canadian cities. And uh, while you're at it, uh, join our Facebook group to see extra content and to learn about our contests. Uh, we had people guess the date when we would reach 500 subscribers. And Betty Nickerson from Windsor, Ontario, uh, she guessed February 14th, Valentine's Day. Well, it was one day after that that we reached 500 uh, when Bob Gal's interview was released. So we're going to have another contest now. Uh, we're going to ask you to guess the date when you think we'll reach 1,000 subscribers. And the winner will get a $20 Tim Hortons or Starbucks card. As a rule, we plan to release episodes on the 1st and 15th of each month. So that brings us to now. On today's episode, we're looking at urban trends in Canada. Cheryl Walsh works for Bible League Canada. And part of her job there is to study just that. To study and to share trends happening across the land. Uh, this isn't just textbook and data details, but also her own experience as an urban missionary alongside her husband, E.J. Toupe, and their daughter, Gemma. Cheryl spoke at the Our City Toronto Conference back in September 2019. We were there and we recorded audio of her session. Uh, be sure to also check out our show notes at SidewalkSkylinePodcast.com. Uh, there's just an abundance of online resources and images from her presentation. So let's give a listen as Cheryl Walsh presents Urban Trends in Canada. Um, I did just want to start and give you all a little bit of an introduction to myself. I think most of you um, might know me or know of me because I am EJ's wife. Uh, he's the organizer of uh, this conference and the visionary behind what's happening here. Um, but just to give you a little bit of a, of a background um, to sort of our story and how I became uh, passionate about urban work. So EJ and I were married in 2016. Um, and essentially, I was living uh, in Hamilton prior to that. Um, I really resonated with Karen's statement yesterday, how she was a liberated, independent female. Uh, that was me in Hamilton. Um, EJ and I were ma uh, got married when we were both 34, so I lived quite a bit of my um, adult life single and really engaged in ministry there. And so then when EJ and I were married, um, and even in our dating relationship, it sort of became a dialogue between us to say, that for him, it was a make it or a break it in this relationship if I wasn't willing to relocate to Toronto and sort of join him on what his urban life and ministry and call looked like. And so I said that I was willing and thus we got married and I relocated to downtown Toronto. Um, and I will say, you know, before I got married, I would have never chosen to live downtown. Um, I would have never chosen to relocate to Toronto. It definitely uh, is a place I visited and loved coming to, but was really unaware of what it meant to be doing urban work here. And so thus began a prayer journey between us that God would break my heart for those in the city in the way in that my husband's heart was broken. And I really began to learn what it meant to love those um, who are marginalized here and to really learn about what that all looks like. And so we worked together um, he obviously does a lot of his own thing, and in certain areas I come alongside him, support his ministry, and then we've then determined what it looks like for us as a household and a married couple to sort of serve downtown. But we do try very hard um, to serve our neighbors, to learn what it means to be neighborly, sort of the way that Karen's talked about it here today, um, to really serve and have our home open to our marginalized friends. We don't really like to say homeless because not all of our friends are homeless, 
um, but they are definitely living in the margins. Um, and we do try to really practice some of that radical hospitality that Karen's also been talking about, which for me was a big shift. Um, and so that was some of the conditions that I had to sort of break down those barriers and learn what it meant to have people in our home. Um, and then as most of you know, if you follow EJ on Facebook, we had a little girl last year, um, now she's one. And um, <clears throat> our prayer for us now as a ministry family is, you know, how can this, um, how can having a child do, how can we do even more um, in terms of that radical hospitality? And we really believe that having a child, um, that God has brought her into our life for ministry purposes. We don't stop what we, what we were doing. We don't change what we're doing all because we had a baby. She just is wrapped up all a part of that. And we like to say that we are a ministry family. Um, and God is definitely using Gemma in ways that we could have never predicted. And so it's been really incredible to see. And actually, on a, on a side story, oftentimes when I was pregnant, people would come to me at situations like this and say, oh, well, I'm sure like when your baby's born, you're not going to have your homeless friends in your house anymore. Or, you know, the individuals EJ's ministering to in jail aren't going to come to your house anymore, are they? And we were like, well, no, they still are. Um, we're not going to change God's call in our lives simply because we're having a baby. Um, so, no, we're going to just, we're just going to keep doing that. And actually, it was really interesting to then enter in a, into a dialogue with people and help to challenge them to say that why, like, why would we do that? Um, and it became almost this really um, interesting journey uh, along that. And even for, for my mom, um, that took her a little bit to wrap her head around that as well, um, that our, you know, our friends are still going to come over and Gemma's going to be a part of their lives. And so we're not really changing any of that. And so in and amongst all of this, uh, I also work for an organization called Bible League Canada. How many of you might be familiar with Bible League? A couple here, and that's... Oh, great. Um, I know that some of you might be familiar because we've got a relationship or you might already know me, and so it's great to see some other hands go up there. But just as a brief introductory, um, because essentially uh, I am here representing Bible League as well, um, so I'm happy to answer any questions about that or help um, to introduce you more to Bible League at the end. But for over 50 years, um, Bible League has been working in Canada, and we've been committed to doing missions differently. And we do this by strategically building international partnerships with national ministries in over 40 countries. <clears throat> and we want to equip local believers through Bible-centric discipleship programs to become champions for the gospel. We want to ensure they're committed to reaching their own communities with the living word of God, and that Bible League Canada diligently tracks each copy of God's word um, that is placed, connecting Canadian donors um, with our global champions to see maximum impact and multiplying transformation. And so more specifically, my role at Bible League is I, uh, in a real broad term, um, oversee all of the ministry and activity we do here on Canadian soil. So I serve on an international team. I'm one of six, and my region is Canada, and the other five individuals I serve with oversee the five other regions around the world. And so we partner here with like-minded organizations who work in the areas of children's ministry, adult ministry, and starting new churches, or church planting, as most of us will know. And so we provide funding for specific projects and programs, along with um, strategic support and prayer support to offer through these partnerships. And so it's our hope and prayer that through these partnerships, uh, these organizations are able to expand their ministries so they can be doing even more um, in, in Canada and on Canadian soil so that more Canadians and Canadian children will then come to know Jesus. And so it's very exciting and um, one of the organizations I'm partnered with or Bible League is partnered with is with Trevor, the organization Trevor's with. Um, and so it's been great to really come alongside Canadian ministries. And so more specifically, today I'm going to be talking about these things. Understanding demographics and cultural trends and faith trends and then how can this in information influence our actions or plans as various organizations working in Toronto or in the GTA. Are most of you here working in the Toronto region or the GTA region? So this is fairly applicable-ish. Okay. So how many of you might have read the uh, census data from 2016? Okay. 
two of you out of, I don't know, 15 or so. All right. Um, how many of you might have ever dug deeper into statistical data that exists within your neighborhood or your community? Okay, maybe a few more. Okay, great. Um, any of you pay attention to the religious trends across Canada, sort of what's happening with politics, um, lawsuits, that type of thing across Canada? Any, any hands-ish? Okay, partial, great. Um, and so, this is why we're gonna talk about uh, this topic and why I think it matters um, quite a bit. And so, EJ and I often, with her in our home, have this ongoing dialogue, like it happens every day. And I'll say something like, oh, did you hear in the news about what's happening in BC um, and how that's gonna affect what's going on here in Ontario? And he'll say, oh no, I only watch like Toronto news. And so, I'll, and then the next day I'll say, oh, did you hear what's happening in like this country over here and you know, and how Canada's responding? And he'll say, no, I only read the Toronto Sun. And so um, it's an ongoing dialogue in our home because I'm such a big advocate for understanding what's happening across our nation and how that can, how that can and does have an influence into what happens here in Ontario and more specifically here in Toronto. And so um, an example of that is the situation with um, the university in BC and what I would say was a very national story about um, the school being sued. Um, and then the next thing you know, that sparked actually quite a significant um, Ontario-wide lawsuit against Christian elementary schools. And so when something happens nationally regarding Christians and you know, the things in which we stand for, it can begin to get picked up locally amongst smaller local communities. And so you know, the next thing you know, um, the EFC is now involved in supporting local Christian schools because you know, neighbors or, um, or potential uh, parents who want to send their kids to those schools can't because of what they might stand for. And so it really is um, just, there is so much value in knowing what's happening across our country. And so a huge uh, part of my job at Bible League is to know and understand this information because it impacts us um, in terms of our ministry in Canada, but also impacts us in terms of an organization. How are we going to use this to determine our you know, future, determine our vision, um, make those decisions moving forward? And so I think that it's more crucial than ever in our history of the church um, and in the history of not-for-profits moving forward. And there's actually, um, if you sit amongst any national not-for-profit tables or attend any um, type of national dialogue, you'll hear more and more um, that the future of not-for-profits will be to be partnering together because of the way our politics are going in the future, that we could see the need um, more and more for organizations to be doing ministry together than independently um, for the sake of the gospel and just because we don't know where you know, our future leanings as a country are going to go. So what I wanna do is just to give you an introduction to the 2016 census data, uh, just so that we can all have the same um, baseline of information, because that'll just impact sort of my talk moving forward. Canada's population now surpasses 35 million, which I think is fairly impressive. 66.5% of Canadians are aged 15 to 64, also a very key statistic that we're going to talk more about later. 16.9% are aged 65 or older. This represents an increase since the 2011 census. Average family size is 2.9. And couples with children versus couples without children are within a 200,000 range. And so I know for most of you um, who are here and are maybe doing um, specific urban work here in the city or wherever you are, um, this type of dialogue could seem overwhelming. Um, it's probably not where you may have time to, um, this topic may not, you may not just have time to think about these types of things because we are very focused on on sort of the needs that are here and now and obviously changing the city. Um, but I think that if, if we can take a step back from the, you know, from the trees that are right in front of us and look at the larger forest of, of what our nation is and where it's projected to go, um, I think it really is going to impact our ministry points in the future. And so this is just a projected population growth chart that you can see here. Um, so you can definitely see um, that migratory population growth by 2046 um, is going to be where we're at. 
And so this can happen through immigration or emigration. And so what I think is really interesting that if you know Jesus Network um, at all, um, and you know what their, their work is about, but they minister and have touch points with a lot of new Canadians that come into, into Toronto, but then those individuals are leaving, uh, leaving in Ontario and emigrating into Alberta and Winnipeg. Um, and if you're from a Filipino background, like our household is, the very first Jollibee in Canada was actually opened in Winnipeg, not in Toronto, because it's the um, largest population of Filipinos live in Winnipeg. Um, and so you definitely see a movement of, um, of first or brand new Canadians coming into Canada. You see them move out of Ontario and in, into other parts of our, of our country. And so this is just, you know, sort of to give you some food for thought as to where we're headed as a nation. And so I'm going to talk a little bit about Canada's aging demographic. So I'll just leave this chart up for you to kind of look at while I chat about some things. But so for the first time, seniors outnumber children in Canada as the population experienced its greatest increase in the proportion of older people since Confederation. So that's what the first video talked about. The figures um, that were released at this time include demographic data related to age, gender, and where Canadians live. There are now 5.9 million Canadian seniors compared to 5.8 um, million Canadians 14 and under. So you are really, we're really going to start to see that shift, um, as you can see in the chart there. This is due to the historic increase in the number of people over 65, a jump of 20% since 2011. Uh, projections suggest that the imbalance of the population will only grow. By 2031, about 23% of Canadians could be seniors, similar to Japan, the world's oldest country. By 2061, there could be 12 million seniors and just 8 million children in Canada. So how are we responding? Are we exploring new outreach strategies to meet this demographic? Are we raising funds from this area of, um, for, for our specific ministries? Um, are we raising funds for this particular ministry area? And so just how are we going to be seeing this shift um, and what are we going to be doing about it as, as, um, as agents who are working within various organizations? So just switching gears a little bit to talk about children and immigration. And so in 2016, close to 2.2 million children under the age of 15, or 37.5% of the population are children, and they had at least one foreign-born parent. And so sometimes I say that statistic, and, some, and <clears throat> sometimes the response is kind of like, that's shocking, or I can't really even believe that. But then I think about my own household, and EJ was not born here in Canada. And so we, our family dynamic falls under that, st that statistic. Well, he's lived here since he was 11. Gemma still has one foreign-born parent. Um, and so when, you think, when I think about the friends and the networks that we have, um, a lot of us are within that stat. And so it's just interesting to think when I first read that, I thought, that can't really be true. And then I was like, oh, no, that probably is very true. Um, and so children with an immigrant background could represent between 39 and 49% of the total population of children by 2036. Almost three in 10 children are second generation. Children reflect new immigration trends here in Canada. 74% of children under the age of 15 were from an Asian country of ancestry, American or African. Nearly 15% of children with an immigrant background lived in a multicultural home, which means uh, this affects their language, their lifestyle, and their values. Children with an immigrant background are from countries of ancestry with often different cultural characteristics than the characteristics of the majority of the Canadian population, such as language, religion, eating habits, intergenerational relationships. And Karen shared a little bit of that this morning, even within her own experience. Um, and if you do have a chance to sit at lunch with anyone from Jesus Network, uh, you can certainly talk with them about their ministry happening in Thorncliffe Park, but it is the highest Muslim population in Canada. The elementary school used to be, and I think still is, uh, the largest pop population of, um, of Muslim children um, attending a school. And so um, certainly they themselves have really great stories of what it means to work with uh, be in relationship with, be a neighbor to um, multi-generational house households. Uh, and so the family environment is the main vehicle for transmitting the culture of origin to children. 
The more relatives in a household, the more effective the transmission of the culture of origin. For most immigrants living in Canada, the traditional family system of their country of origin involves several generations living within the same household. Children born in Canada to at least one foreign-born parent were, mo were most likely to live in a multi-generational household. In 2016, 18.2% of children born in Canada to two foreign-born parents and 9.5% of Canadian-born children with one foreign-born parent were living in multi-generational households. So you're really seeing now that just because you see one house doesn't mean it's only one family unit or four people or two people that are, that are living there. You're going to find six or seven or eight. Um, and so again, just as we think about this information, how is it impacting us both right now and in the future? What are we doing to reach the children in our neighborhoods? What are we doing to reach the children um, who speak a different language in our neighborhoods? How can we be neighbors to multi-generational households? And this is something that EJ and I talk about. Um, we live in Leslieville, uh, and we've done sort of some stats and um, looking at the demographics of our, um, of our area, and it definitely is family-driven, but also seniors. We have a huge senior population, um, and so, just how are we, as being neighborly people, being neighbors to seniors? It's really easy for us to be neighbors with other families with kids, but how are we reaching the seniors center that's literally a block down the street from our house? Um, and how are we gonna, how is that going to influence what we do um, as a neighbor in our future? As the, as the populations grow in Western Canada, it is for that purpose, um, but there is more job opportunities cost of living um, can be lower in some more rural communities in the West as well than here in Toronto or Vancouver or um, the other metropolitan cities across Canada. And so I think it's a combination of all of those, all of those things. Um, and I don't know if anybody knows this, but the uh, mayor in Calgary, so just as, as an example to this, um, yeah, he came through here and was connected with uh, the Jesus Network as well and then relocated um, and so I think that there could just be a natural way of, of, of thinking for, um, for individuals that come that, can, that Toronto is simply just a stopping point. They have to come here, but they don't, have to, they don't have to stay here. Our friend Alex, who works here on staff at Stone Church, is originally from London, um, and he has seen a big population of demographics shift in, um, in that area as well, and he sort of speaks to the same thing, that um, they sort of land in Toronto, and then move on out to where it's more affordable, where they can have bigger houses for multi-generational living, larger land spaces, um, sometimes better or different schools that can accommodate their, their kids more so than Toronto school systems can. So I think there's probably a few facts. Uh, so just a little bit on immigration and ethno-cultural diversity. Um, so obviously we know that Toronto is a very diverse city and so, but uh, nationwide, immigrants represent 21.9% of the population. Over 7.5 million Canadians reported being immigrants, which is one in five people. Um, this is the highest it's been since 1921. Ontario, Quebec, BC, and Alberta have the largest immigrant populations. So here in Ontario, over 3 million uh, would say that they are an immigrant. Quebec has just over 1 million, and BC just over 1.2, and Alberta is just under that 1 million mark. So if we digged a little deeper and look specifically at Toronto, so the Toronto at the time, in 2016, Toronto population was 2,691,665. Immigrants are 1,226,000. So 47% of the population are immigrants, while close to 52% of Torontonians are from a minority background. Um, and so I think, you know, when I first started living here and I would say to my parents who don't come to the city very often because it's as if we live on the other side of the world, um, you know, they just couldn't get over just how diverse the city was and that, you know, I took my mom on the streetcar for the first time and we were literally the only ones speaking English, you know, and just how interesting that is if you don't come to the city that often and how easily um, uh, communities can be very self-contained you know, they can uh, get their taxes done and they don't need to speak English. They can, you know, fully function and not really have to know our language. And so I really think Toronto, um, I, we're, I'm thankful to be raising our child um, in this culture and within this diversity here, but 
it really is fascinating. Like coming out of Hamilton, it can be diverse, but it's definitely not over 50% um, are not from a minority background there. So in 2016, people with English as their mother tongue accounted for 57% of the total Canadian population. And so I just think it's just um, continues to be really interesting um, as we can continue to see these trends shift. Um, I'll just transition. You can see a little bit here. Um, so 7.5 million foreign-born people came to Canada through the immigration process. And so you can see that we have more than 200 places of birth um, are reported. So China, Philippines, and India are the top three countries of origin between 2011 and 2016. And so this will just visually tell you the same type of information here. Um, so the top 10 countries of birth of recent immigrants. And so I even found this to be quite um, interesting as well. Uh, just I didn't know that more people emigrated from the Philippines to Canada than anywhere else in the world. And so it made me wonder, why do, you, you know, why do Filipinos want to come here? Um, and how is that sort of influencing our culture um, moving forward? So you can just see, this one is just, again, another infographic um, to, just talk about, to just share about economics. Um, I won't go through it in a lot of detail, but um, in, on May 10th, Canada was home to 5.7 million immigrants who had settled in Canada between 1980 and 2016. And so obviously, immigration is a huge part of our history, and I pray that it continues to be a huge part of our future. You can see here um, just the differences between refugees and immigrants sponsored by families. And so certainly with the Syrian crisis, Karen talked about that um, again this morning, Canada certainly has responded to that need to continue to bring families here. Um, and in Hamilton, the church that I was a part of there, we sponsored two families during that time as well. And it really is an incredible process. Um, and so if you haven't had a chance to be a part of that, um, and you're given one, I'd really uh, suggest you prayerfully consider that. You know, and then so many times I have people say to me, but, you know, immigration takes away jobs, and, you know, why do we need immigrants, and yada, yada, yada. And so I just found this really great infographic from the National Immigration Center of just why immigration is important to, to Canada. And I think, you know, as, as we continue to have um, immigrants join our population moving forward, It'll be really great to see um, how our nation shifts with that. But for us at Bible League, too, we, we, really, uh, we really began to ponder this question as an, as an organization um, to say, you know, are, are we as an organization representative of this? Are our boards representative of this? Are our donors? Um, you know, Bible League was birthed out of the Christian Reformed tradition. And so a lot of our donors are actually over the age of 65, come from the CRC background, and are predominantly white. Well, that's no longer represent, like that isn't our country any longer. And so how are we, um, how are we responding to this? Are we you know, trying to uh, diversify our staff? Are we diversifying our languages? Are we producing material in more than just English? Um, you know, it's just, it's just food for thought to get us thinking about how do we, what are we going to be doing in the, in the future? Um, and so for organizations not to, not to die, we have to be able to sort of respond to that. And so um, I just want to touch a little bit on Aboriginal population as well in Canada because there were some, in I thought um, at the census some interesting data came out from, from that which I thought maybe would interest everyone here. And so in 2016, over 1.6 million Canadians identified them as Aboriginal Canadians. And so this can be include those who are First Nations, Matisse, or Inuit, and are those who are registered or treaty Indians, and those who have membership in a First Nation or Indian ban. Aboriginal peoples of Canada are defined in the Constitution as including the Indian, Inuit, and Matisse people of Canada. And so one of the articles that I was reading um, was talking about the increase in the urban population of Aboriginal peoples has been taking place for decades in Canada. The change has, been, has often been misunderstood simply as the movement by First Nations people away from reserves and into cities. 
But in fact, the population continues to grow both on and off the reserve. From 2006 to 2016, the number of Aboriginal peoples living in a metropolitan area increased by 59.7%. And so when we talk about a metropolitan area, we're talking about cities like Toronto, Vancouver, Montreal, where the, you know, everyone, I hope, is familiar with that phrasing. And so the CMAs of Winnipeg, Edmonton, Vancouver, and Toronto had their largest Aboriginal populations. Amongst all of those cities, Aboriginal people accounted for the highest proportion of the population in Thunder Bay, Winnipeg, and Saskatoon. The Aboriginal population more than doubled in seven central metropolitan areas from 2006 to 2016, which I thought was fairly incredible. Uh, St. John's, Halifax, Moncton, um, and so I, you know, it's been a while since I visited Atlantic Canada, but I wonder if, um, if you know, if that can be seen, if those who live there full time are seeing are seeing that change. Um, Quebec, Saguenaw, Sherbrooke, and Barrie. And so amongst all of those, the fast the population that grew the fastest was in St. John's, Halifax, and Moncton. And so, you know, I I thought, hmm. Well, that's just, you know, what do we do about that? Um, and so over the same period, Aboriginal population growth was slowest in Regina, Winnipeg, and Saskatoon. Um, and so an, another uh, article that I read, although I don't have it on here, um, talked about the shift of, talked about these, the actual shift, and they, they can't necessarily prove this to be true, but anecdotally, thought that it was because in the 2016 census, more individuals self-proclaimed themselves to be a part of the Aboriginal community. Whereas then maybe before, in the previous census, it, sen, um, they, they weren't doing that. And so because in 2016 there was more discussion nationally, um, we all know sort of the journey we've been on as a nation with our Aboriginal population. And so that perhaps in the 2016 census, they were confident to self-declare that. And so that's where we kind of see um, just where did these numbers kind of come from and why was it such a big jump? And so that was sort of what this article was talking about. Um, and so any of you here work specifically with Aboriginal in your areas of focus? Yes, oh yes, Jan. Um, you know, and so um, this is an area where Bible League is prayerfully considering um, working in our future. And so, you know, how can we be partnering with organizations that are working in, in this area? And what could that look like? And, um, and so as we understand these demographics and the huge need, sort of how, how can we be um, headed in that direction? And so that's part of my job is to explore that possibility and to see where that can come in the next couple of years. So for the remainder of our time, and I want to leave some time for some questions and, and some dialogue, I really want to focus on religious trends um, because I think that this is really, um, this is really going to change us as organizations moving forward. I think it's really affecting us as a nation. Um, and it's just, I think it would be great to just have some dialogue around that. And so some studies have been done and this is um, an outcome of that. So a declining share of Canadians identify as Christians, while an increasing share say they have no religion. Similar to trends in the United States and Western Europe. So Pew Research, which is where this data has come from, their most recent survey in Canada, which took place in 2018, found that a slim majority of Canadian adults say they are Christian, including 29% who are Catholic and 18% who are Protestant. About three in 10 Canadians say they are either atheist, agnostic, or nothing in particular. Canadian census data indicate that the share of Canadians in this religiously unaffiliated category rose from 4% in 1971 to 24% in 2011, although it is lowest in Quebec. In addition, a rising share of Canadians identify with other faiths, including Islam, Hinduism, Sikhism, Judaism, and Buddhism, due in a large part to immigration. They found that these five groups together make up 8% of Canadian adults. And so a new Angus Reid study was also published depicting how Canadians view religion. They asked Canadians how they feel, positive, negative, or neutral, about 10 different religious groups. 
<clears throat> so the top five religions viewed most positively by Canadians are Roman Catholics, mainline Protestants, Buddhists, Jews, and Hindus. And what's interesting about that as well is that Hindus actually only make up 1% of all religions in Canada. So it's interesting that Canadians think that Hindus, um, they see them quite favorably. Um, it's not a very large population. And so, the two religions viewed neutrally are atheists and evangelical Christians. And so, what is this saying? Uh, so the three religions that were viewed with a negative public image are Sikhs, Mormons, and Muslims. You know, and so, I think when we first looked at this, and when I first looked at this for sure, I was like, well, this is dismal. Um, just, you know, put all us evangelical Christians on the same line as atheists and we can all be friends, I guess. Um, and so it really kind of, uh, a, a lot of us were talking about this one day at a roundtable discussion and, um, and it just really led us to say, like, we could look at this and feel depleted um, or we could look at this and say that we still have hope, right? That there's always hope in Christ, um, there's always work to be done. Um, and we are actively doing that work. And so it's, you know, it's, it's my hope and prayer that, you know, in time, um, evangelical Christians will be viewed most positively by Canadians um, in, that, in that future. Um, so just to answer more on that, um, I would agree with that statement as well, that uh, we are and have been moving into uh, a country or a culture where being Christian um, may not be viewed favorably any longer. And so I just have some articles um, about that. And so this is, again, another statement that faith and religion in public life, Canadians deeply divided over the role of faith in the public square. So for the, from the earliest days of human civilization, spiritual practices have been an integral part of daily life in many societies. The modern concept of separation of church and state is relatively recent development. In Canada today, matters of religion and affairs of government generally do not mix, except for when they do. A new national study from Angus Reid again, the latest installment of a year-long partnership with Faith in Canada 150. Are any of you familiar with that? When Canada turned 150 years old, there was a, um, a Faith in Canada year-long, I don't know if celebration is not the right word, but they did quite a, a bit of studies, and you could go to um, Faith in Canada seminars and workshops, and they would present all of this data, so I was able to attend some of those. Um, so they basically canvassed the intersection of faith and public life in Canada, and finds most Canadians seeing at least a small role for religion in the public square. That said, the size and nature of this role varies depending on one's own personal orientation towards religion, as well as specifics such as which religious group is being considered and what sort of interaction between faith and society is taking place. Those who are more deeply faithful at a personal level generally have more favorable view of the role of religion in, in society and a greater desire to see it. Though they are um, skeptical or of certain religious traditions and certain government policies dealing with faith issues. Um, so this is just... Uh, it's a little bit blurry, but this will give you sort of what I just described in, um, in actual data. And so there's a mix of good and bad um, of the over overall contribution religious and faith communities are making to Canada and Canadian society today. Um, and then this next one will show you what would you consider ideal when it comes to the overall participation and influence of religious and faith communities in Canada in Canadians' public life. In your view, should religion, religious and faith communities have a major influence, some influence, not much, or no influence? So I'm going to share some examples recently that have been in the press of how we're seeing sort of Christianity. Um, we're not going to use the phrase persecuted here because we are not um, a country where we face persecution, um, but we are a country where we're facing intolerance. And so that's sort of the way that we phrase it at Bible League. Um, and this is part of that national dialogue. And so, you know, how, how are we going to see this moving um, and shaping us moving forward? And so how many of you heard about this when it took place? A few of you, some of you, maybe not. Okay. So uh, 
as you can see, it was my headline here, um, Julie Payette, um, she basically mocked people with religious beliefs, critics say, um, as the governor of general of Canada at the time. And so, um, how many of you are familiar with uh, EFC as an organization? Okay, so EFC plays a very active, active role in Canada um, in terms of um, national dialogue as well as um, supporting things. And so, the EFC basically um, wrote a letter to her and this was sort of where it became a national dialogue and a bit of a, a, um, a formal response on behalf of um, Canadians who have any faith, not just evangelical Christians, because she basically mocked any persons of faith who believe um, in any higher being. And so the article, you can find it online, it's very long and detailed, but just to give you a snapshot of the shifting trends as where we are, as a nation, are headed. Um, and so I think personally, when I sort of read this article, that I do believe that the, that the bottom line of all of this is to simply understand that we are no longer the nation of, like, of my parents, who are you know, pushing 70 in that generation where you grow up, where faith um, and religion is a part of public life, um, and that our culture has certainly shifted from there. And so I do believe that while we could look at these charts um, and be very disappointed about it, I continue to see so much hope and so much, and so much opportunity. And this is why I think we're all passionate about the work that we do here in Canada. It's why we continue to work here and why we continue to work here in Toronto. Um, and so, um, just to, just gonna jump around just for time. Um, but essentially the EFC responded um, to say, to invite um, Julie to deepen her understanding of Canadians with deeply held religious beliefs, including the experience and engagement of scientists with deeply held religious beliefs. And so in her, um, in her speech, she said this phrase, we are still debating and still questioning whether life was a divine intervention or whether it was coming out of a natural process, let alone, oh my goodness, a random process. So as the governor general at the time, um, that was very offensive to many individuals across Canada who are persons of faith. And so the EFC responded accordingly. Uh, some of you may have heard of this one. This is a more recent one. Um, so Quebec bans public employees from wearing religious symbols. So again, this is fairly significant. Um, we're beginning to see more and more of this type of um, yeah, intolerance happen. Uh, the Canadian province of Quebec recently enacted a new law that bans many public employees, including teachers, police officers, and judges, from wearing religious symbols in the workplace. While advocates of the measure say it promotes the separation of church and state, opponents have already challenged the law in court, saying it targets Muslim women and erodes religious freedom. As we all know, Quebec is a mission field here in Canada. I'd say the province of Quebec more so than any other province across the um, across our whole country, um, but this is still fairly significant. Um, just as another aside, but I don't know if any of you recall a few years ago at Christmas time, there was a Christian group of people who traditionally sing at Young and Dundas and they were not allowed to. Um, but then the very next week, a group of Muslim individuals on a Friday were invited to pray there. And so, we, so while we see it nationally, if you are um, paying attention to local news, you see that intolerance happening more and more here in Toronto, especially as well in the, in the school board system. <clears throat> so this one is new just as of this past spring. So the EFC submitted to the Special Senate Committee on the Charitable Sector. And so, um, long story short, uh, there was a, uh, a review of the charitable sector in April of 2019. So um, Canada-wide, the government um, was tasked to basically review the charitable sector and what was happening there, what they could do if they had any recommendations for changes and, and that type of thing. So the EFC participated in a review of the charitable sector encouraging the government to intentionally make room for religious Canadians to participate in public life and recommending that it keep the advancement of religion as a charitable purpose. So one of the, four, one of the 42 recommendations of this Senate committee was to change um, the charitable purpose to only two areas, 
and it would remove the advancement of religion as a charitable purpose. And so this is where, again, we continue to see that, you know, that dialogue about how is religion um, and government working well together and how they're not. So of more than 86,000 registered charities in Canada, approximately 33,000 were religious charities or roughly 38% of the charitable sector. It is estimated that there are 24,000 Christian congregations in Canada. So this is, like, this, this is like huge, I think it's huge, that if they were to make this, this change, it, it will affect all Christian registered charities. And so the EFC, I was very thankful that the EFC was, or was invited to participate in their review and it wasn't just simply a response. And so they were able to have dialogue to sit around that table. And so a segment from their submission um, regarding the increasing anti-religious sentiment in Canada was this. So I'm just going to read this one portion. The belief that religion is irrelevant to contemporary life is increasingly common. Even more troubling, the growth of ideological secular, secularism in Canada has been accompanied by a fear of religion and a belief that religion should be privatized and kept out of the public square. Religious Canadians perceive increasing discrimination against themselves, their beliefs, and their institutions. Ignorance of what religions actually believe in practice tends to increase false stereotypes. Ignorance and stereotypes leads to discrimination. And so they, um, and so they just continue to say that an increasing anti-religious climate in Canada, in Canadian society, may prompt some to overlook the benefits that religion offers to Canadian society. We note the brief to the committee by the British Columbian Humanist Association, which includes a recommendation to remove the advancement of religion as a charitable purpose. As we outlined briefly above, religious communities' existence and ministry benefits Canadian society in ways far beyond their religious adherence themselves. A significant way to address anti-religious sentiment would be to collect data and report on the role of religious um, attending individuals and religious charities in Canada. So there has not been a study of that kind to really say, sort of, um, like formally be able to say what the role of religious attending individuals and religious attending um, charities in Canada contribute to the larger society and the larger Canadian life. And so the EFC is basically recommending that that happen so that we can have a better dialogue because if 38% of the charitable sector is religious charities, then obviously there's some good work going on there. And so this is sort of the last, um, just the last uh, trend topic I sort of wanted to talk about, but um, I think most of us would be fairly familiar with um, this topic that's been trending across Canada, um, assisted suicide, abortion, and sort of um, that the Ontario Court of Appeal upholds the effective referral requirements. So the EFC participated in this dialogue as well and um, they took it all the way to the Court of Appeal. Um, and basically, the Court of Appeal concluded that the policies to infringe phys physicians' religious freedom by requiring them to either violate their convictions or abandon their practice um, area rather than face persecution for failing to do so. Um, so basically, the three judges agreed with the court that the infringement is justifiable as it advances the goal of ensuring equitable access to health care. And so essentially, um, doctors or any persons um, who may be asked to participate in any one of these activities, regardless of their religion or how they may feel about that, are still going to be asked to do that. And so they've essentially um, removed the opportunity for a health care practitioner to um, basically say that they're not going to do that. Um, and so this is so, really what I wanted to do was to demonstrate in all sort of um, aspects of Canadian culture, uh, Canadian social life, um, really this intolerance is affecting multiple areas of us as a nation. And so it's not just about, you know, churches, it's, you know, it's in the healthcare system, it's in our school system, um, this, you know, this trend of being intolerant towards evangelical Christians um, or persons of faith in general um, just continues to be on the rise. Um, and so for us, I think, as persons working in ministry, it's just, it's, it is really key to be paying attention to these things, you know? 
Um, and just even thinking about my own personal journey or our personal journey as a family and sort of living out our faith in our neighborhood and in our community. Um, just a really small example, but I work at a co-working space around the corner from, from our house. Um, and, you know, there's multiple types of people there. And I certainly am on the phone quite often. And so because I work for a Christian organization, prayer is a huge part of, of what we do. So I was on a conference call sort of in public space and I had video on and our group was praying. And then I finished the call and um, a person adjacent to me was like, oh, so like, what was that all about? And, you know, what exactly were you doing there? And, you know, and I thought to myself, they actually had like no idea what I was doing um, or why. Um, and, you know, and he was just like, that's like, that's kind of cool, but, um, you know, perhaps next time you could go into a closed door office for that. And so it's just even interesting for just a dialogue of, you know, just being in public space. How do other people respond to us when we uh, act out our faith? Um, and so it's not to say that, you know, they don't want me to pray there, but just as individuals, you know, see what we're doing and see, you know, how, how we are uh, living our life. It was just really interesting to me to just be like, okay, so that's fine. I mean, you don't have to like that, but um, it was the first time I've ever sort of had a dialogue with somebody who was a little bit uncomfortable with praying in public. Um, and so it just was, yeah, just an indicator for me to say, okay, yeah, things really are on, like, are changing. Um, and how are we responding to that? Well, that was Cheryl Walsh at the Our City Toronto Conference. You know, as the city goes, so follows the country. There were so many valuable insights for us uh, in Cheryl's research. Urban centers are the most frequent epicenter of innovation and change, and that's true not only in Canada, but around the globe. Hey, on our next episode, we have a very special guest named Kevin Rogers. Well, yeah, that's me. At least my mother always told me that I'm special. So for our next segment, we're playing a repeat episode from Paul Fraser's Multiply Network podcast. That's a podcast that you may want to check out to hear about the process of multiplication, how it's happening in Canada through church planting and innovative ministries. On episode 19 of Multiply Network podcast, Paul Fraser interviewed me as I outlined five ways that we see urban ministry commonly developing in Canadian cities. That episode was recorded before we launched this one, uh, Sidewalk Skyline, and it fits perfectly into understanding faith at work in urban centers. Well, thanks again for listening in, and remember to go check out Multiply Network Podcast. See you again on March 15th. Until then, keep one ear to the sky and one ear to the ground in your city. I'm Kevin Rogers, and you're listening to Sidewalk Skyline.